Father, we thank you for another opportunity to come together to hear your voice through your holy word. And today you give us a chance to partake of one of the great chapters in all that you have revealed. It's a chapter in which we see that despite our sin, we get to behold your incomprehensible and amazing and immeasurable love for us. Such that you would sacrifice your only begotten son in our place. And we get to see how that brings you joy. That being the case, Father, let no one leave here today. Let no one walk out the doors unamazed and unfazed by your incredible gospel. May it not be fuzzy for us, but may we comprehend the good news in high definition such that we might humble ourselves and come to you and follow you wherever you lead us for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, all Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture. And that means that 2 Chronicles is just as much the Word of God as the Gospel of John. And the little epistle of Jude is just as much the Word of God as Romans. And well, today, Luke chapter 15, there really aren't any valleys in Scripture, but there are definitely peaks. I mentioned John. John 3 is one of those peaks where Jesus has his encounter with Nicodemus. Psalm 51 has always been a peak for me because that's David's psalm of repentance after the affair with Bathsheba. Romans, really the whole book of Romans is a high point for me personally, but if you want to boil it down a little bit, Romans 5 through 8 is where Paul unpacks the gospel of Jesus Christ and really going back to chapter 3 where where he's unpacking the gospel in a way that's just fuller than anywhere else in Scripture. It's a high point. And Luke 15, where we are today, is a high point as well. Because after a couple of introductory verses to give us some context, the whole chapter consists of three parables. There's the parable of the lost sheep, there's the parable of the lost coin, and then there's the parable of the lost son. We more typically refer to it as the parable of the prodigal son, which may be the most famous of Jesus' parables. But today we cover... The first two of those, which serve as kind of a preview for the the prodigal son parable. And in these two parables, we're going to see one of my favorite verses, 1 John 3, verse 1, exemplified, which says, How great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. So let's read it and then let's see it. Luke 15, today, verses 1 through 10. And this is what it says. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him, near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, 
What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I lost." In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This man receives sinners. That's what the Pharisees and scribes say in verse 2. This man receives sinners. Those four words separate the religion of the Bible from every other belief system there has ever been or is or will be. In the Judaism that Jesus encountered, religion was not repentance from sin and faith in Yahweh. It was keeping the law and it was keeping the traditions of the elders. And, and even in, in Orthodox Judaism today, it, it's, they pretty much try to make it that way. In Islam, it's not about the work God has done in your place, but it is about keeping what are the five pillars of Islam. It's something you do. And even then, Allah, being the capricious invention that He is, He might reject you. Or Roman Catholicism, in which salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but it is some mixture of faith that you muster up with the good works you do, and those works, those good works are defined by centuries of Catholic tradition that have been placed alongside and really on top of the Bible. And of course, there is also the preferred religion of the day, which is secular humanism. It is the worship of the self. It is often disguised as being moral. It is often disguised as expressing belief in God. But really, it amounts to your good outweighing your bad. And sadly, this is the religion of the majority today. This is even the religion of many professing Christians. They are, are really secular humanists with Christian dressing. But this man receives sinners is different from anything else. It puts the initiative on God. It makes salvation His will. Salvation is truly of the Lord. Sinners don't deserve to be saved. Sinners aren't trying to be saved. Sinners aren't really seeking God, which is something we see in Romans 3. But this man, Jesus, received, receives even today, sinners. Jesus is the one on the front foot. Jesus is the one taking the initiative. Jesus is the one welcoming those religion leaves behind saying, come to me. Here in Luke 15, we are right on the hills, literally speaking, from what Jesus said at the end of chapter 14, that being his disciple is going to cost you everything. 
Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is going to cost you everything. You've got to make terms of peace with Him, and they are His terms of peace. They are not your terms of peace. And you don't come to Jesus on your own terms. If you don't come to Jesus on His terms, you can't be His disciple. And that's not exactly a seeker-sensitive message. And it turned off the religious establishment of Israel completely. And it turns off the vast majority of people in our community today completely. But it's what we have to proclaim. It's all we have to proclaim. It's the only message that saves. Only the truth sets a sinner free. Nothing less than that. And Luke tells us the people in the know were tuning Jesus out in their hearts. But here the worst of the worst were listening. The tax collectors, and remember we've talked about them throughout Luke and and other places. They were Jews who were working for the Roman Empire. They would take the taxes and then they'd take whatever else they really wanted. They were robbing the people and so they were rightly viewed as traitors. It didn't get much worse than being labeled a tax collector. Levi Matthew was a tax collector when Jesus saved him. And then there's this term sinners here. He's eating with hey, this man receives sinners and he eats the tax collectors and sinners were coming to him. The word sinners there is not referring to every single person although we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God but but here it is specifically an epithet used by the religious leaders for those Jews who may have been Israelites by blood but they they were not religious. There's a lot of people like that today too. These people coming to Jesus were in the eyes of the religious people the worst of the the least respectable people you could think of. And so the Pharisees and the scribes they began to grumble. But notice that their scorn was not for the tax collectors and the sinners themselves, it was for the one receiving them. This man receives sinners. There is scorn in that. There's indignation in these words. This man receives sinners and eats with them. He fellowships with them. He welcomes them. How dare he? Well, Jesus heard them because of course he did. John 2, we see that Jesus knew what was in man. So they didn't even have to speak these words for Jesus to know what was in their hearts. But Jesus heard them. And as Jesus often did, he responded with parables. Short stories exemplifying God's truth. And not so that these Pharisees and scribes would necessarily believe and understand in their hearts, but so that they would be further condemned. As we've seen in the parable of the soils, it's to those who are born of God, it's to those who are following after God with their hearts who are able to understand truth. Well, what was Jesus saying here? Well, first, there's the parable of the lost sheep. Parable of the lost sheep. And there's a shepherd, and as I hope you know, shepherds and sheep are often used in Scripture as imagery. I mean... The most familiar passage in the Bible to many people, even people who don't know anything else about what the Bible says, they may be able to quote to you verbatim Psalm 23, in which the Lord Himself is a shepherd. The shepherd is the imagery that God chooses there to define who He is. 
And in that psalm, he is the one who does what? He cares for his sheep. He comforts his sheep. He guides his sheep. He takes care of all of their needs. So why? Even in the valley of the shadow of death, they have no reason to fear. Just as today Christians, those whose hearts truly belong to the Lord, have no reason to fear because we are sheep and the Lord is our shepherd and we shall not want, we shall not have need of anything. So there's that. But lost sheep are also spoken of in Scripture. Victims of bad shepherds. And they're used as imagery in Scripture as well. In Jeremiah 23, what was left of the nation of Israel was about to be exiled to Babylon. And the prophet Jeremiah spoke. He said, Woe to the shepherds who are destroyed. He's speaking the words of God. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. And later, when Israel, when Judah was exiled, Ezekiel was then the prophet. And in Ezekiel 34, it's, Woe to the shepherds feeding themselves and not feeding the flock. Those who were sickly, they did not strengthen. Those who were diseased, they did not heal. Those who were broken, they did not bind up. And those lost sheep wandered, scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. So in Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34, God presents Himself in both of those instances as the good shepherd who will come and save His people. Just to share one of those passages from Ezekiel 34, 11 and 12, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And the point is, beloved, the Jews in Jesus' hearing, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling, as well as the tax collectors and sinners, they were not unfamiliar in the least with sheep and shepherd imagery in their religion. They were well used to it, especially the Pharisees and the scribes. And so they would have immediately recalled texts like the ones I just read, and even more than that because those are just scratching the surface of of sheep and shepherd talk in the Old Testament. They would have a frame of reference. When Jesus told them a sheep was lost, one out of a hundred, which really is no great loss nominally, normally. I mean, you still have 99 sheep, right? I mean, losing one, not that big of a deal. But no, this shepherd cared enough about each of those who were his sheep to leave the 99 behind to go after the one who was lost. And just to answer One question you might have about it not making sense to leave the 99 behind. The idea here is the shepherd doesn't leave them alone. He leaves them with uh, trusted friends, shepherds. He doesn't forsake the care of the 99. He, He goes after the one 
But why is the sheep lost in the first place? How did the sheep get lost? What would happen if it remained lost? Well, sheep are, in the grand scheme of things, very dumb animals. They are too disoriented to find their way home if they were to get lost. They are utterly defenseless against really almost any danger you could think of. If they were to, you know, a couple weeks ago we talked about thorns and snares. If they were to get caught up in actual thorns and snares, they would be very easy prey for any kind of predator. And sooner or later the sheep, if it remained lost, would find itself in some situation where it would definitely die unless it was rescued by another. And thus, sheep are just about the perfect picture of you and me, of our spiritual condition, and why the Bible so often uses the imagery of sheep to describe the people whom God is saving and caring for. Because you and I, by nature, are spiritually dumb. In fact, we're spiritually dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul writes. You were children of wrath. You were sons of disobedience. You were going after the the prince of the power of the air, Satan. You were following after his ways. By nature, you have inherited Adam's sinful nature. And so all you do, you follow after that. And again, we've talked about this before. That doesn't mean you're always as evil as you could be. But it means that no part of you is untainted by sin. And so we're spiritually dumb and on our own, we wander about a spiritual spiritual wilderness with nothing but thorns and snares and utterly incapable of finding our way to the one who is the good shepherd. And so it's just a matter of time before we will die in our sins. Thank God, the Father, for sending His Son, Jesus Christ who is the living embodiment of the shepherd of Psalm 23, by the way. He is the Lord in human flesh who by the grace of God saves His sheep from their sins. Which was so different, by the way, than what the Jews taught about sin and grace. They they taught that if a sheep, if a person wanted to come under the care of the shepherd, it had to find its own way back to the fold. And here Jesus is saying, you can't. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us to seek God in so many words. Again, there are none who seek after God. What it does say is there is none who is righteous. So instead, like the shepherd in this story, God is the one who acts. God is the one who goes. God is the one who goes after His sheep. We are the ones who are in imminent and eternal danger. We are the ones who are defenseless. We are the ones who are certain to die. But then Jesus comes to rescue us. And this shepherd Jesus, He he will look until He finds what He is looking for. He comes not just to seek, but to save that which was lost. Lost, by the way, through no fault of His own. He's the Good Shepherd. That's what differentiates Him, by the way, from all other shepherds. As one commentator puts it, 
Shepherds in the Middle East are poor men clothed in simple dress who wander in privation over the countryside. No educated man would spend his days trampling over the wilderness for any purpose. But that's not Jesus, is it? Jesus isn't just traversing over the wilderness. He has condescended to rescue His sheep. He has condescended from the glory of heaven to come and find His sheep. And what does John 10 tell us in another sheep shepherd uh, analogy? My sheep, Jesus says, my sheep will hear my voice and they will follow me. And I know them and they know me. Not one of those whom He came to save is going to remain lost. They will hear His voice. They will follow Him. And He will give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch Jesus' sheep out of His hand. So one way to know, beloved, this morning, if you are really one of Jesus' sheep, if you are saved, is simple. Are you following Him? Are you following Him? Are you following Him this morning? Are you following Him yesterday? Are you following Him tomorrow? Or like the religious establishment of Israel, are you going through the motions, living by your own will with Christian dressing? You know, the bad news is, if you are doing that, unless you repent, you will die in your sins. The good news is that if you are one of Jesus' sheep, maybe even by hearing these words tomorrow, He will find you by them. You will come, you will follow, and He will lead you to green pastures beside quiet waters. You know, just as the Israelites grumbled and complained against Moses, and Moses was God's chosen shepherd for them at that time and in that place, They were really complaining against God. You know, in my Sunday school lesson this morning, we talked about Samuel and how they wanted a king. Samuel was God's man for that time and that place, and they rejected Samuel. Why? Because they wanted a king like all the nations. And what did God say to Samuel? They aren't rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Just as they complained even after God saved them from Egypt. So here too, the Pharisees and the scribes They were grumbling. They were complaining against Jesus when He was desirous of fellowshipping with sinners. See, they didn't realize they're the sinners too. Jesus received them and He ate with them. The combination of those two, by the way, demonstrates Jesus' intentionality. This was more than politeness. This was more than hospitality. Jesus was creating fellowship with these people who had no business before God. But here was God binding Himself in community with them. This man receives sinners. This man receives sinners. Let us remember that, by the way, the next time we're talking about the type of people we want to see come through our doors. Let us remember the type of people that Jesus sought out. You know, reason would dictate the shepherd in this parable would cut his losses and count his blessings and move on. The shepherd didn't do that. He 
didn't predicate his decisions on strategies and outcomes. He didn't decide to save the sheep based on anything about that sheep other than it was his. And look at the joy of the shepherd when he finds the sheep. I mean, look at the joy in this text. It defies all logic, really, that he would be this joyous and express this much happiness over a dumb animal, especially when he has 99 more who are safe and secure. It defies all human reason. But then again, we're not talking about human reason here. And the point is not that each of these Pharisees and scribes and tax collectors would have done the same. The point is, none of them would have done what Jesus says this shepherd would do. None of them would have done that. And that's what separates God's love from all other loves. That's what separates the grace of God this morning from all other graces. That's what separates His mercy from all other mercies. God sent His only begotten Son so that there might be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And don't miss that word, repents. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And by the way, Jesus is almost as if he's saying, put the, put the air quotes on, righteous persons. And it is truly a hard-hearted, self-righteous person who believes they need no repentance. Who believes they have nothing to repent of. It is... The epitome of pride to think you need to be forgiven of nothing. And Jesus was letting them know it was better to be in fellowship with Him than to be on the outside grumbling with no repentance. Are you in this morning or are you out? Well, if that wasn't enough, Jesus kept on. He told another parable. Let's reread it. It's just three verses. Verse 8, the parable of the lost coin. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You know, God's joy is definitely touched on in the first parable. I touched on it a little bit. But the main point of that parable really is the sacrificial love of the shepherd for each of the single sheep that are his. God's love for those whom he will save. Like it's said of Jesus, you know, in John 13, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the max. Beloved, if if you are one of God's sheep, God's Love has no bounds for you. Nothing can separate you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. But here, while it is much the same, the emphasis is is, is tweaked a little bit because the emphasis here is on the lengths God goes to for His own joy. For His own joy. You know... A lot of times we are under the mistaken impression that God exists for our happiness. God does not exist for your happiness. God exists for His own joy. A lot of things have been written on that in the past 15 or so years. A lot of it's really good too. But God exists for His own joy. 
a woman has ten silver coins, but she loses one of them. Well, she still has nine, but each coin is of such value to her that she goes to great lengths to find it. Now, sweeping the house, that doesn't sound like such a big deal to us, but Middle Eastern houses, they didn't have windows. Most of them didn't. I mean, we're talking, there's not a lot of natural light coming in. That, you know, that's one of the reasons, by the way, that we see rooftops spoken of so frequently when talking about an ancient Middle Eastern house. Because that's where they'd go. I mean, that's... But here, there's no windows means less light. Less light means finding things that are lost is next to impossible. So what does the woman do? She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She, she searches carefully... Until she finds it. We would do that for something we really need to find. That was valuable. But, but here's the part we wouldn't do. We wouldn't then call together friends and neighbors for the sake of a coin. Who among us ha- has ever held a party because we've, we've lost a, a hundred dollar bill? Or, or, you know, or something like that. Who among us has thrown a party for that? The point is, she spends more on the party than what the coin is worth. The joy of God has no price tag. The joy of God has no price tag. And that is what brings God... What is it then that brings God such great joy? One sinner who repents... One sinner who repents. If you are one of his sheep, God has spent so much more on you than what you're worth. Except you're worth it to him. You are worth it to God. And the joy of God has no price tag. You know, beloved, over the last few months we have dealt with some very difficult passages in the Gospel of Luke. There have been some Sundays where I've been like, people are going to stone me on the way out the door. Thank you for not doing that. Uh, Some have been hard to preach. You know, it'd be much easier for me just to say, God loves you and God has a wonderful plan for your life and, and move on. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not the whole counsel of God. And most people don't want to see Jesus as harsh. But sometimes, as we have seen, He was extremely harsh. And sometimes we need to hear Him being extremely harsh with us. And so it hasn't been easy to preach some of these messages. I'm sure it hasn't been easy to hear some of these messages about how it's going to cost us everything to be His disciple. How how it's not easy being called a hypocrite. But we need to hear it because God wants to conform us to the image of His Son if He saves us. So there have been some difficult passages, but this one, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, this shows why it's worth it. They show why it's worth it for us to deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily and follow Christ. They show why it's worth it because it means so much. It's so worth it to God. Because what has He done for sinners? This man receives sinners. 
God values every single individual He will ever save and He loves them with an everlasting, incomprehensible love. An amazing love. An incredulous kind of love. And it brings Him such inexpressible joy each time even one sinner repents. Beloved, if you want to bring God joy... If you want to make God happy, if you want to bring God joy, it's very easy. Repent. Be a repenter. Be someone who in humility comes to Christ continuously repenting. Of course, you're not getting saved over and over again. But the life of a Christian is one in which we are constantly realizing how much we are in need of Christ. You know, The gospel is not something for the day we got saved. The gospel is something for the day we got saved and every day after that for eternity. Turn from your sins and in desperation joyfully come to Jesus and submit to Jesus We read Romans 10 earlier. Confess with your mouth Jesus as what? Jesus as my ticket to heaven? No. Jesus as my fire insurance out of hell? No. Jesus as Lord. Master. And you follow Him. Of course, at this point, there was a great chasm in the, in, the, in the text, there is this great chasm between the Pharisees and scribes in the kingdom of God. Or maybe I should do it vertically. <laughs> they complained. They complained when Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Yet all heaven rejoices as it's been put. You wonder, you know, it's like Jesus is saying this. You wonder why I receive sinners and eat with them? I do so because in my person, God is fulfilling His great promise hinted at in David's shepherd psalm, spelled out clearly in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Through those prophets, God pledged Himself to come in person to round up His lost sheep. He pledged Himself to rescue His flock from the shepherds who destroy them. And this is who I am, Jesus says. This is why I do what I do. This is why Jesus did what He did. And I shouldn't end this without saying there are many so-called shepherds out there who are destroying sheep with messages just designed to make sure they come back next week. Messages that make people happy, messages that sell books, messages that don't offend, messages that tickle ears, messages that don't call for a change in a person's life, it's just a change in their demeanor. Messages that don't call for submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, messages that don't call for a thorough understanding and submission to what is said in this book. But that's who Jesus is. Jesus has come and He has given us His word that He might rescue us. A great chasm lies between those today who think themselves righteous, who need no repentance. A great chasm lies between them and the kingdom of God. And I hope you are on the right side of that chasm this morning. You can't get to the other side by the things you do. You can only get to the other side by what Jesus has done. This man receives sinners, and that is the hope of the gospel. 
The question is whether or not you persist in your sin, but or if you are that one sinner who repents. Jesus died that sins might be forgiven. He was raised that everlasting life might be given. He's the only bridge over that great chasm. Do not in pride and self-righteousness resist Him. The shepherd, beloved, is looking for his lost sheep. May you find yourself in His fold. May God find joy in your repentance. Let's pray. Father, You are our shepherd. And we shall not want, we shall have no need of anything more than you. We quote that psalm, Father, in distress. We quote that psalm in pain. We quote that psalm at funerals. But it really isn't for the dead. It's for the living. It's for those whom you make alive by your Holy Spirit. It's the promise that you save. It is comfort and it is hope and it is rest, Father. For those lost sheep whom you have taken the initiative and done the work to find and save and protect forever. And it brings you such joy. And I think that's what gets so lost in in so much gospel preaching and maybe even in my gospel preaching, Father. And may it not be so. You, this is what brings you joy. Father, too often we're wrapped up in our own joy. But your word shows us that your joy should be our delight because it's in you those who are saved find joy. And so God, I pray, crush our pride. May self-righteousness be far removed from us. May unrepentance have no place, and may the absurdity of thinking we need no repentance be permanently separated from us. And may you work through us to stop being consumed with what is best for us and be thoroughly consumed with what you say is best and what you say brings you joy. Father, give us a passion for the souls of men and women and children, that's the joy of heaven. And as Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Bottom line, Father, is that if we are not under shepherds who go out and search for your lost sheep by proclaiming the gospel, we are weaker than we think. So may we find joy in the gospel... May we, be, may we find joy in you. May we proclaim that you receive sinners. And may we respond with repentant faithfulness for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.